Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, in literature, and in popular culture. Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Bruce Markison, and as usual, I am joined by my co-host and producer, Tracy Asteria. Tracy, how are you? I'm doing great on this long weekend. How's everything with you, Bruce? Good. Yeah, I was curious to ask you about your Halloween preparations. The big day is only a few weeks away. Do you decorate uh, like crazy the way that uh, I do here in Cooperstown? Oh, you know, I do not, but I do have some really pretty sparkle lights up. However, my next door neighbors, they went all out decorating yesterday. It looks phenomenal. It looks like a graveyard and there's pumpkins everywhere. It is so cool to see. Very nice. Uh, and just to let you know what we've got so far on our front yard, we have two skeletons, uh, four gravestones, and a variety of ghouls and witches. And it seems like every other day we're adding to the collection. So it's it's starting to take shape. Oh, nice. Always a lot of fun getting ready. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Tracy, our featured guest on this edition of the Ghostly Gallery is award-winning author and uh, a great friend of ours, Frank Delastrito. I first met Frank at the Monster Bash convention in Mars, PA. I believe it was back in 2018. And to be quite honest, Frank is one of my influences. He's one of the reasons I decided to pursue writing about horror. Uh, particularly my efforts in, in writing a book that came out a couple of years ago, Hosted Horror on Television. Uh, Frank has written a number of terrific books, both fictional and non-fictional. Uh, his list includes, well, the first book that uh, I ever got from him and I read, I saw what I saw when I saw it growing up in the 1950s and 60s with television reruns and old movies. Frank has also written a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, the history and mythology of classic horror films. Uh, he has done Vampire Over London, a fascinating look at Bela Lugosi's time in Britain. Uh, also the fictional Carl Denham's Giant Monsters. And his latest book, which I have not yet purchased, but do plan on doing so shortly, uh, it's gotten some wonderful reviews, Patron Saints of the Living Dead. Frank is a two-time winner of the Rondo Award. Uh, he was the Rondo Writer of the Year in 2022 and uh, very significantly a member of the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Frank, as always, it's good to hear from you. How you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I, I first met you uh, at the Monster Bash convention and uh, you convinced me to buy your book. I saw what I saw when I saw it. Didn't take a lot of convincing because it looked really interesting to me discussing your your roots as a horror fan. And for you, this really dates back to the 1950s. You were growing up in Hoboken, New Jersey and you watched a lot of television and uh, also started going to the movie theater. Tell us about your start as a horror fan. Well, I, my start as a horror fan, I can actually nail down to a day. <laughs> I haven't got that day in front of me. It was early 1958 and uh, Shock Theater had just come on television. Shock Theater was the first packaging of Universal Monster movies. So. Before 1958, they had not been on television, and they played very late. Uh, it's hard to appreciate now when you can see 
you know, slasher films at, at 10, 10 o'clock in the morning or earlier if you want to. But in, uh, in the 50s, they were horror films were kept usually on late at night. And uh, Shock Theater came on 11.15. Now, at night on Thursdays and Fridays, I believe, or Fridays and Saturdays. And uh, be honest, 11.15 is a stretch for me these days. And in, in 1958, <laughs> when I was eight years old, it was impossible. But my brother was the late owl. And he got up on Saturday morning. I was watching my cartoons and he told me about the tremendous fight between the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster in the movie, of course, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And that hooked me. And I thought, wow, you know, and uh, when you were a kid, sometimes you can't really imagine your world getting bigger. And I said, yeah, I'll never get to see that. It's on too late because I'm just not awake that late. And, uh, but after that, Everything I heard about monster movies, though I really hadn't seen any yet, stuck to me like glue. And I wanted to see them all, and I, I wondered if that day would ever come. And of course, every year, the monster movies got on earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, and but I wasn't up. You know, I, I was I was interested in monster movies, even though I hadn't seen them. And then the big day for me, and a big day for a lot of monster kids like me, was the afternoon I sat down to an Abbott and Costello movie. I sat down to see Abbott and Costello, and I, when I got up an hour and a half later, I wanted to see Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney. Hmm. And, that, and that movie was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Now, if I, I mean, just divert for a second, I, some years ago, I was on a panel talking about Bela Lugosi, and there were eight of us on the panel, which, but by the way, is much, much too big for a panel. It was very awkward. It wasn't a very good session. But more than half of us, I think five or six of us, had gotten hooked on Bela Lugosi and hooked on horror films by watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So it is it is the movie for my generation to make you into a monster kid. So that's how I got started. After that, I wanted to see them all. And and by then, programming was on my time. They were, uh, they were on Saturday afternoons. They were on Saturday evenings. Uh, they'd be on... Uh, after you know, I remember several times I raced home from school to get get to a home in time to see a movie that was on right after school, and so I would say from it was it was I I don't know I don't remember the exact date I think it was June fourteenth, nineteen sixty one that I saw Abbott and Costello on a Saturday afternoon, mm. and within three years I had seen. I won't say all the universal classics and all the classic horror movies, but I had seen, you know, I had, I had, a, I had a, a, quite a few under my belt and there were a few strays that took years to find that didn't come to television for whatever reason. But, uh, so my jealousy of my brother, uh, <laughs> got, got me hooked. Uh, Abbott Costello's beat Frankenstein made it permanent and, and, it, and the rest is history. I want to get into Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in depth in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk about your your parents. And I mentioned the book, I Saw What I Saw When I Saw It, which is a great personal history, but also uh, somewhat of a scholarly history as well of the, the films from the 50s and the 60s. And you dedicated the book to your parents, Frank John Delestrito and Norma Elaine Colgrove. Uh, and you wrote very beautifully, not until I wrote this book did I realize what they meant to me. I'm curious what 
your parents, Frank Sr. and Norma, what did they think about your interest in horror? Did they did they want to let you stay up late like your older brother? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't make it hard, but they didn't make it easy. Uh, I had a traumatic experience when I was three years old. My mother took me to a matinee of a war, war of the Worlds, and I screamed my head off for an hour and a half. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it, it, it terrified me. And I, I talk about that in the book, how my mother was, you know, it, you know, every parent knows when a child goes ballistic, trying to make them quiet, <laughs> settle them down is impossible. And so I, I buried my head into the theater seat. And I, I remember, I, I, I remember, this is not an exact, I gnawed on the fabric, just trying, just trying to hide from the, the horrors on there. <laughs> and after that, there was uh, no tolerance for my watching anything scary. And uh, as I recall, even uh, even Casper the Friendly Ghost, don't let him watch that. He can't take it kind of deal. <laughs> and because uh, I was three years old at the time, by the time I was six, I was reading, uh, I was seeing ads, the glorious ads for Godzilla and Rodan, and I expressed an interest in seeing them. And no way, Jose, <laughs> we're not gonna not gonna go through that afternoon again, kid. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so. Uh, but uh, again, it's hard to appreciate in the 1950s and well into the 1960s, a second television and a second telephone was an un- unimagined luxury in, mm. in my neighborhood. <laughs> you, you just didn't have them. So uh, fortunately, my, uh, my father on Saturdays liked the afternoon ball games, but he didn't have that much interest in evening TV. And my mother was always puttering around the kitchen till rather late at night. So uh, they didn't mind me watching Chiller Theater that came on at 7.30 and things like that. Uh, They never objected to my watching a movie as long as it was before my bedtime. Mm. The last of the Lugosi-Karloff co-starring movies that I saw was The Raven, and it it wasn't on television. And one night, I think I was 16, maybe 17, it came on at midnight on a Sunday, you know, midnight on a school night. Mm. And uh, I wanted to stay up to see it, and they, they, they weren't interested. So I dutifully went to bed at a – by then I could manage to stay up late. Dutifully went to bed at 11 o'clock, and I tried to sneak down. We, we basically slept in the third-floor attic, which was redone. And I hmm. tried to sneak, sneak down to where our one television set was. My mother caught me at about 11.45 and made me go back to bed. And then I tried 10 minutes later, and I think I missed the opening credits for The Raven – uh, to this day, I do not know if my mother just gave up or she fell asleep. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, the the only the only movie they refused to let me see that I really wanted to was not a horror movie. It was Lon Chaney Jr. The, the movie that made Lon Chaney Jr. was uh, of Mice and Men. Uh, you know that made him a a that made him a sensation, and The Wolfman made him a star. But if Mice and Men came on and my parents, and that came on at a decent hour, it came on like eight o'clock at night and my parents wouldn't hear of it. And I couldn't Mm. understand that. And uh, it was on once a year and my parents would never let me put it on. And not until I I grew up and moved away, I was in my mid twenties before I saw it at a revival theater. And I understood why, because the the final scene, if you have a heart at all, makes you cry. (laughs) And they did not want they did not want to live through that again. It's one, it's one of the most uh, gut-wrenching moments uh, I've ever seen in a movie. 
and as the years go by, I must admit I'm easier to easier to move the tears in the movies. But but uh, Mice and Men, the ending just tore my heart out, and a, a lot of it is due to Cheney. Cheney is just uh, it's incredible that he gave that the performance he gave. Yeah, I know. In talking to you, in hearing some of your talks at Monster Bash, reading your books, you have a tremendous love of the work of Bela Lugosi, whom you feel I think is still underrated to this day. And the first Lugosi movie that you saw, well, it wasn't it wasn't Dracula from 1931, but I believe it was Return of the Vampire from 1943. I just rewatched that the other night, but that's a movie that's really important in your development, right? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, Abbott and Costello from Meet Frankenstein made me a Bela Lugosi fan, so nothing with his name on it escaped me after that. Mm-hmm. I have I have vague memories. Some some of his poverty row movies were on in in the fifties, and I have vague memories of them being on the TV. Not that I was watching them, but my either my brother put it on, or my parents put it on, or my grandparents put it on. I have vague vague memories of scenes, but it was Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein that made me a, a Bela Lugosi watcher. I wasn't going to miss anything that had his name on it. And shortly after that was uh, Return of the Vampire, and. It was uh, edited, so it fit a one-hour time slot, which means when you take out the commercials, you're talking about 45 to 50 minutes of movie. So it was edited quite a bit. They, you, uh, you miss the return. You, you, you see the return, but you don't see what he returns from. It wasn't, it wasn't until the age of home video I saw the full movie. And uh, that was quite a few years after. I saw, the, I saw uh, Return of the Vampire in, 19, I would say, 1962, it wasn't until 1986 when I when home video came in that I got the VHS and I was I was seeing scenes I had never knew existed, but I love that movie, and uh, you know, and I, I'm a I'm a, a lone not a lone voice, but I'm one of the few voices out there that say we have to take Dracula, Return of the Vampire, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, uh, suspend disbelief a bit over some character names and settings, and they form Bela Lugosi's Vampire Trilogy. He only played a vampire. He played an out-and-out vampire three times. Dracula and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. He played Count Dracula, and in the middle he played a character named Armand Tesla. And uh, it was made by a different studio, and they they strained not to uh, be on copyright infringement against Universal, which made the other two movies... But when you watch them in sequence and say, "Okay, I'll, I'll let the I'll, I'll let this character be the same as that character, etc." It makes a, a, a rather cohesive trilogy, and I, I I love the three of them for that. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he behaves in Return of the Vampire almost identically to Dracula from Twelve Years Earlier. It's the same character; they just changed the name, as you say, for the copyright reasons. Yeah. And they throughout the movie, you know, Dracula is Hungarian, and they throughout throughout Return of the Vampire, they keep stressing he's that the vampire is Romanian. Yeah. <laughs> but if you if you line up the characters in the movies, they, there's a one to one correspondence between characters in Dracula and characters in uh, Return of the Vampire. And of course, I didn't know it at the time, but if you go behind the scenes, uh, there were people making the movie at Columbia that had worked for Universal in the, in the 30s. So they brought a lot of ideas over that Universal never used. And that probably raised some eyebrows at Universal. I, I, I often wonder if 
that's one of the reasons that Universal rather dropped Lugosi in the mid '40s. They just uh, turned their backs on him, and because he had not, you know, he had basically taken part in something they might have seen as as going a little too far as borrowing from them. Really, that's because I've never really heard a cogent reason for why Universal sort of frowned on him. You think that may be it? Uh, that I, I think that's one of the. He was. You know, I, I I don't think he's a total innocent in this, but Universal never treated him with the respect he deserved, and uh, and uh, they never paid him what he was worth. So that that's more his fault because he was he was never you know he spent money like water. The man was a spendthrift, yeah, and he was never never in a position, never in a strong bargaining position. But uh, uh, to go a little further, the man that wrote the script for Return of the Vampire. Wrote eleven scripts for horror movies for uh, Universal in the in the three or four years before that, and then never wrote another one. Really? <laughs> and Bela Lugosi had been in a Universal movie at least once a year for three or four years before Return of the Vampire, and never was in another one except for the lucky accident of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. It shouldn't surprise us that you published your first book and it's Vampire Over London, Bella Lugosi in Britain back in 2000. Uh, you had been a, a very successful executive with Exxon uh, for, for many years. And then uh, I think you might have still been working with Exxon at that point. I'm not sure if you had retired yet, but what prompted you to start your writing career at that point? Uh, well, I worked for a big company, right? <laughs> And I, I worked hard, and I was on a lot of projects. Incidentally, it was it was mobile. Mobile and Exxon didn't didn't combine until after after all this started. And uh, the laughter you hear in the background are Exxon Mobile executives laughing because I wasn't an executive. I was a engineer. I was sometimes had people working under me, but I was not an executive. <laughs> anyway, I uh, I uh, there was an emptiness in my life that I was, a, I was a cog in a very big wheel. I mean, there were big projects, billion dollar projects. I was working on them. I was contributing to them and yada, yada, yada. But I really wanted a body of work I could call mine. Right. And I, I struggled with that for a while. And then I, I went back to my first love, which was, was horror movies. And I started writing magazine articles about them. And uh, I remember I, I wrote one when I was a kid in the seventies and then in the mid nineties, I, I wrote it, I contacted a magazine and, and, and said, I, you know, would you like an article? And they, re, they actually remembered an article I had published when I was a teenager. Now, you know, being, being working in a big company, I'd write memos that would be, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they were breathtaking, but they'd be forgotten in two weeks. And here was somebody that was remembering something a generation after the fact. So I started writing articles and then, uh, it always bothered me about Bela Lugosi going to Britain because he was there. He was there for months, and uh, you know the, the 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 summation of what had been written about his life when it came to Britain was he went to Britain in 1951. Not much happened. He came back, and I, the man was there for months. He could not have lived without a paycheck for months. Hmm. It just it was not in his makeup, and so I, you know, through the years I had collected what little came my way on his months in Britain. And then, uh, then I owe it to my co-author, Andy Brooks, who uh, put an, put a, ad, advertisements in different magazines saying I'm interested in Bela Lugosi's 
Monsoon Britain in 1951. If you have any information, let me know. I sent him what I had. I wished him luck. And then lo and behold, I was transferred to Aberdeen, Scotland with my company, which was mobile at the time. So I was living over there. So we contacted each other and said, let's see what we can find out. And we started finding a lot. Mm. And he, he was there eight months and he was hardly idle the whole time. And, uh, you know, all the all the uh, Lugosi biographies that had been printed until then, uh, basically, at most, they said he was there three months, you know, and some he, he was there and he came right back because it wasn't a success. And none of that was true. And uh, so we, we, we uh, you know, we documented what he had done there. And basically, he appeared in Dracula for six months and, and over 200 performances all across the England and Scotland and even over to Ireland. And... Uh, and then we started finding people, and that was the that was the neat thing because these people had basically been, you know, taken to the stage in their early twenties. Most of them had not found a career in theater, and they moved on, and they had never thought about it again, never spoken about it publicly. Now, at the time, and this is like the nineteen nineties, you can go to Hollywood and find a, a lot of people that had worked with Lugosi, Karloff, etc. But they had been telling the same stories for fifty years. And we found we found all these people that have never spoken about working with him before. So you can get into a discussion as to which is the best Battle Lugosi biography. But I would say I would say a Vampire Over London, Battle Lugosi Britain by in Britain by Andy Brooks and I is the one that really gets into the man because we had all these first person accounts of what it was like being with him day to day. And uh and I'm really, we're really proud of that book. So that's, that's what got me started. And then, and then uh, I kept writing articles. And uh, my second book, A Quaint and Curious Volume, collects the articles I had written up to that point and added some new ones to them, expanded them, and became a book. And the reason I did that is I realized you can, you can write a good book, you can write a bad book, but your name lives forever. If you write a great magazine article, you live for an issue. So, so I decided, decided to bring them into a book. And then the third one was the one we've been talking about. I saw what I saw when I saw it. And they're all excellent. They're all excellent books. Um, I've, I've read, um, I think, I want to say four of the books that you have done. Um, they're beautifully produced. They're in-depth. Uh, they uh, explore a lot of areas in terms of the nonfiction research that, as you mentioned, had not really been previously uncovered. I mean, the the material about Lugosi working on the stage in Britain was was completely new to me and everybody else for that matter. Um, and that's one of the great things uh, about the writing that you've done. Frank, I do want to go in depth on Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, I love it too, just like you do. But it's also somewhat timely because Sven Gulli is going to be featuring it on his Saturday night show on MeTV coming up on October 14th. It's going to be part of a double header. He's doing double headers all October leading up to Halloween. I know that you love the movie uh, and you, you loved it pretty much from the start. But what, what is it about this uh, film that really draws you to it uh, right from the start and continues even all these years later? Okay. Uh, it is, well, first of all, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It's an Abbott and Costello movie, but it's hardly a typical Abbott and Costello movie. They are, you could take them out of the plot and still have a, a pretty good horror movie. <laughs> and the, and it's, you know, it's a meeting of two worlds and it's a transition from one world to the other. And I, I've often described it as a movie that will take 
a a fan of children's entertainment and turn him into a fan of monster movie entertainment. It, it starts, as you probably know, with, with an, animation. The uh, mm. opening credits are animated. We see the first time we see Frankenstein, monster, the Wolfman, Dracula. They are they are cartoon figures in silhouette, and uh, and then we go into Abbott and Costello, and uh, you know, we all, as I've said in, in some of my writings. We've all been Abbott. We've all been Luke Costello at some period in our life. A little guy trying to figure out the world and not quite getting it right. <laughs> we've all been through that, and that is probably Costello's universal appeal. Appeal is that we can feel for that, and he is being drawn into the, just as just as we as children are drawn into the adult world. He is being drawn into the world of monsters, and in that world of monsters, there's a lot going on, and it is the contest between. The Wolfman and Dracula that drives the movie. The, the, the driving element of the plot is Dracula wants to revive Frankenstein's monster basically as his slave. And early in the movie, he, sends to, he says to Sandra Mornay, who is the, the doctor, the first female doctor in, in the, uh, the Frankenstein, Universal Frankenstein series, he says to her, I do not want to make repeat Frankenstein's mistake and revive a vicious, unmanageable brute. This time, the monster must have no will of his own. And he's talking, and Sandra Mornay assures him that she's got the right brain for him. And she, of course, is talking about Lou Costello. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, and why does Lawrence Talbot pursue him with such, with such energy? He's followed him from Europe. Uh, you know, obviously, Talbot has problems of his own. He turns into a wolf every time the, the, the full moon rises. Why does he go after it? And uh, one of the one of the the elements of great horror at that is that there are questions on, on left unanswered, and and the big question left unanswered in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein: Why is Talbot so dedicated to going after Dracula? And that's what leads you into the seven Frankenstein Universal Frankenstein Wolfman films that come before Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. There's a whole history between Dracula and Frankenstein. I mean, excuse me. We, well, Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, and and Drac and uh, the Wolfman that we don't know, and at least I didn't know when I watched the movie, and when I watched when I was you know working through the movies one by one, not in order because in those days we didn't have home video. You had to watch the movies when they were broadcast. <laughs> so, I think I think the second Frankenstein movie I saw was Son of Frankenstein, which is the third in the series. And then the one I saw after that was House of Frankenstein, which is the fifth as a series, and you had to piece this history together. <laughs> and uh, and and when you finally did, you know, Dracula destroyed the man that saved Lawrence Talbot. That is Doctor Edelman in House of Dracula. Edelman actually cures Talbot, though obviously his lycanthropy comes back, and and Talbot is forced to kill Doctor Edelman because he's been driven insane by Dracula. And so there's some there's some payback there, and I remember in uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I was when I was watching the movie. I'm 11 years old. It's a sunny day on a Saturday afternoon. I'm watching it, and and the only time Dracula and the Wolfman meet in the whole Universal series is in is one scene, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. They, they meet at a masquerade ball, and Lawrence Talbot says, "So we meet again, Count Dracula." And I remember thinking, wow, there must be a lot of movies where they've been before. <laughs> you know, I, gotta, 
I can't wait to see them. But of course, there's not. There's, there's movies where the Wolfman and Dracula in the same movie. And, but, uh, well, the House of Frankenstein are in the same movie, but they never meet. They're never around at the same time. House of Dracula, they never really meet. Dra uh, Dracula passes through a room in which uh, the Wolfman, Lawrence Talbot, is. But we they never meet. But it's not until uh, they square off in the... In the in uh, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein, Costello meet Frankenstein that they, they really meet, and then and then the finale is a masterpiece of editing. I mean, you got all these characters running around in this mansion, and the, the movie keeps track of them. Abbott Costello are being pursued by the monster, and uh, Dr Dracula and the Wolfman are battling it out. And when you get the background of the movies, and this is one of the great things about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, the more you know about the movies that came before it, the more you can appreciate what's going on in the movie. Hmm. And uh, so Dracula versus the Wolfman, a 1930s monster against a 1940s monster, a, a, an aristocrat against a blue collar, uh, new world versus old world. It is, it is so many worlds at battling there. Hmm. That it, that it, uh, then when you get to appreciate that, the movie really takes on a depth. It, it starts off as a pretty good adolescent entertainment for a, a kid in his late preteens, early teens, and becomes really something to watch when you get older and you know, you know the history. And that's what does it for me. And and like, and uh, it's to me, it's an almost perfect movie. But there, I, I would put in one scene if they, if anyone asked my opinion. Uh, Dracula and Dr. Mornay discuss in front of the monster rather callously how they're going to replace his brain with Lou Costello's brain. When the monster comes, gets his strength back, uh, he does two things. First thing he does is kill the doctor, <laughs> and, then he, uh, and then he pursues the, the donor. <laughs> and uh, if you watch the... If you watch uh, all the all the Frankenstein movies that came before it, a, a sustained pursuit by the monster is pretty damn rare. <laughs> he doesn't. He's basically, if you get in his way, he wipes you out, and otherwise leave him alone. And, uh, and but in this movie, he goes out of his way to try to kill the guy whose whose brain is going to replace his. So I would I would put one scene in where Dracula and Mornay are speaking. Uh, this. Shift for a second, just to the monster that lets us know that he's under, he's hearing this and understanding it, and not particularly appreciative of it. Mm. Interesting. One of the things I like about the movie Frank is that the comedy doesn't overwhelm the horror. Lou and and Bud are are, are very funny. Lou, uh, you know, of course, Bud is more of the straight man, but that allows Lou to shine as he plays Wilbur, who's very inept. But then the monsters are pretty much allowed to play their role straight, and I think that's one of the reasons the movie works. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. It's a, uh, it's like it's it's it takes place in two separate worlds, and when the worlds beat, they they meld they meld them perfectly. But on their own, the monsters have are doing their shtick, and Abbott and Costello are doing their routines, and they don't they don't bump into each other ex except when they have to, and then when they do that, it really works. Yeah. Now, Lon Chaney Jr., of course, played Talbot and the Wolfman. It was very critical of the film in later years. Uh, he was not a big fan. Why do you think he disliked it so much? I, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, um, I, I just don't have an answer. The, uh, the, 
you know, he spoke well of the Wolfman. He uh, he apparently enjoyed his horror parts, except for the Karis the Mummy, which were was a physical ordeal for him. Uh, I don't know what he had against the movie. If he were, I, and this is not uncommon, by the way. I mean, some of my favorite performances, I I, I read later that the actor is not too proud of it. And I, I, if he were here or she were here, I'd say you got you got nothing to be ashamed of. That was a great performance. Yeah. And uh, so I, I I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. All right. A few questions I want to ask about the film. Kind of opinion questions. First of all, I think Bela Lugosi is actually better in this film than in the 1931 movie. Uh, he's got 17 more years of experience with the English language. I think he absolutely nails the role here. Not to say that he wasn't great in 31. Do you agree or disagree? I agree. Uh, I, I don't think seeing the movie Dracula would have hooked me to becoming a monster movie fan the way Abbott and Costello beat Frankenstein. Did, nor would it have made me the Ben Lugosi fan that Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein did. Uh, of course, Lugosi had a lot more help in, in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein than he did in Dracula. He is uh, he's one of the great things about Dracula, but that movie has a lot of a lot of problems, right? It's a it's a, it's not the definitive vampire movie where you wished it were. You, you rather wish it were made a few years later in the sound era. era. You wish it were made with a different director. I think Todd Browning uh, was 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 uh, basically a silent movie director, hmm. and uh, I, I wish it had been made by by uh, some of the other ones working at, in the genre a few years later. I mean, if you compare 1932 horror movies or any movies in general to 1931, they're slicker productions. Sure, uh, I could say you know Edward G. Robinson is more as a better gangster in Key Largo, which was made in 1949, I think, about the same time Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. He's a better gangster in that than he is in, in public in, in uh, Little Caesar. I think Jimmy Cagney is a better gangster in uh, White Heat, which was made about the same time as Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, than he is in Public Enemy. It was uh, the, the technology was coming along. And uh, the... Uh, you know, the movie, Dracula has has its flaws, and uh, and Bela Lugosi as Dracula, and uh, Dwight Fry as Redfield, and Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing overcome a lot of that with their acting, but in the end, they're they're more they're helping the film more than the film is helping them. Well said. I think Glenn Strange is very underrated as the monster in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Agree or disagree? Uh, I guess I agree. I don't know. I, you know, when you talk about the movie, you, you hardly hear him mentioned. So he, he should be, he is, you know, in his three Frankenstein outings, uh, you know, a, a, a very harsh critic once said, mainly he's defrosting, which is, he spends most of his time on the, on the laboratory table. Uh, but he, when called upon to do anything, he does it quite well. Uh, the, the, the monster at that point didn't have the depth that the you know Karloff, Karloff's roles. They had the depth in the script, they had the depth in the plot, and he ha he could give it depth in his performance. Uh, Glenn Strange, quite frankly, is called upon to do little, and he does it rather well. I think he does it from a, a physical standpoint. He was a much bigger man than Karloff. He was probably 6'4", 215, 220 pounds. Um, physically, 
Uh, he's more imposing in a lot of ways than Karloff, not to say that he was the same level of actor, but uh, in, in just in terms of the, the, the physical actions of the monster, I think he does very well. Um, final question about the movie um, that we're both such huge fans of. How often do you watch it? Do you watch it once a year? More than that? Uh, I, I, I do it in spasms. I'll, my wife will be over here grinning because I tend to watch the same movie over and over and over again. Then I'll put it away for a while. I, uh, and, and, you know, not only is on, is on Sven this Saturday, it is now on Amazon prime. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I can, I can just flick it on anytime I watch. So I guess I've watched it three times in the last two months because it's on Amazon prime. I watch it quite a bit. It, is it the movie I've seen more than many any other? Maybe, hmm. maybe. Uh, my guess is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and King Kong are the movies I have seen start to end the most. There's a lot of movies I just watch for a certain scene and then I, I turn it off. So, so I might have seen them more because yeah. it doesn't take as much time. But uh, yeah, I, I watch it a lot, and I hope to continue that. You know, I'm curious. I've never heard you talk about this, but of all the monsters that Universal Studios produced, Frankenstein, uh, Dracula, the creature from the Black Lagoon, Wolfman, the mummy, the Invisible Man, which is your absolute favorite? Do you have one? Uh, If I had to say one monster, I guess I'd go with the Wolfman. Uh, if I had to say one performance, I guess I would go with either Bela Lugosi and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or Boris Karloff and Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, they're so, they're so different, you know, you know, it, it, a, a different question would be who's your favorite Dracula. <laughs> and my answer to that is it's, 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 it's a lot of characters it's a lot of different characters with the same name. So it all depends where your inclinations rise. My, my favorite Dracula is Bela Lugosi, but John Carradine's Dracula is excellent, but it's a much different, it's a much different portrayal. It's a different character altogether. So they just happen to have the same name. Uh, you can more relate to Lon Chaney as, as, uh, as uh, Lawrence Talbot. I, I would have to, have to give him the edge, a slight edge though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is actually the first monster movie that I ever saw. And it was during a late night when I was babysitting. So that was kind of like my first experience with Frankenstein and the monster movies. Um, but I have a, a different kind of a question for you. Um, what do you think about today's horror genre? Is, is there anything that you find fascinating both in film or in books and is there an author director or writer that stands out to you today uh, there, there have been some excellent horror movies and there have been some big budget lousy horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> i uh i i i used to go to the movies all once a week before covid and covid kind of killed that i don't right. think i've been to 10 movies excuse me yeah no i definitely agree i'm with you on that <laughs> but I went, I went and saw Demeter, which is about the ship that uh, that uh, Dracula takes from Transylvania to England. Mm -hmm. And it left me flat because the vampire is basically a big bat. He has no personality. There's, not, there's no character there. And I went and saw Renfield with, with uh, 
Nicholas Cage's uh, Dracula. And uh, the, I love the first two minutes because they weave Nick, Nicholas Cage into scenes from the 1931 Dracula. And I was thinking, gee, this is going to be great. And then it fell apart and it got into these protracted, gory uh, violence scenes. Now, you know, I, I, I have as high a caution for violence as anybody else, but when they go on for 10 minutes, you say, this, has been, this is getting boring. You know, I wish you guys would end the fight and get on with the plot. Uh, I'm, uh, let's see, thinking, thinking back, I, I, I really like the, uh, what's the woman Naomi Watts? Uh, oh, The Ring. The Ring. I, uh, I thought The Ring was great. Yes. I'm a, I'm a fan of Final Destination. I thought they did that quite well. And actually, Final Destination 2 is done rather well. Uh, um, name me some more recent horror. But, you know, I, beyond the 1960s, I start to, okay. I start to fade out. Uh, I'll end the 1960s. Ro- Rosemary's Babies is one of my favorite horror movies. Oh, absolutely. I, and I, I must admit, I did not see the ending coming at all. And that was, that was a big plus. So, uh, name some more horror movies from the from later periods. Uh, I, I can get, if if I've seen them, I'll give you my two cents on them. Yeah, I've, but I, have you been watching any of Mike Flanagan's um, on Netflix at all? Anything to do with like Midnight Mass or The Haunting of Hill House? Have you have you seen any of those? I saw The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, Here's my I, th- I think one of the the uh, one of the virtues of the old horror movies is that they're rather short. I think horror stories that are dragged out don't work for me. So, like the the haunting, I thought was a great film. Though the film was a, the ending was a bit of a letdown. But the haunting of Hill House, which is basically the same story, it went on too long. You know, I, I kept thinking to myself, I got that. <laughs> so. So I, I I haven't been a fan of the of the series. Right. I just I just think, I think horror stories keep them short. You know, and that's Edgar Allan Poe was a wise man to write only short stories. Yeah, and uh, and uh, yeah, that's my opinion of that. Nice. Well, thank you. That's that's really fascinating because I'm always interested to hear what what others think of what's going on in the horror industry today. So I definitely appreciate your answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 now it's coming back to me. Uh, American Horror Story season one, I liked great a great deal. Right. Oh yes, that was. I really enjoyed that too, actually. Yeah, and uh, as the seasons went on, they 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 started pushing the envelope on what they could put on TV a bit too much. And, you know, pushing the envelope for for the sake of pushing the envelope, I think it's uh, doesn't doesn't do that much for me. So some of the later ones, I didn't. I didn't care for, but the first year, the first season, I, I, I was, I really liked. Nice. Are you interested in seeing the new Exorcist film that just came out? I have seen the new Exorcist film. Oh, wonderful! How was that? It was. Uh, I'd have to give it a not bad. Okay. It was. I thought it was. Uh, here's the pro- here's the problem. The problem I see. I, I thought it was. It was. It was really captivating for its first two thirds. Mm-hmm. Once the exorcism starts, you know where it's, you know, okay, come on, come on. You know, enough with the prayers and all that. Where are we going here? So once the exorcism start, it's uh, it's uh, familiar ground. And I, I thought, you know, and I, when I was watching that movie, I thought the genius of the original exorcist 
was that they, the actual exorcism scenes were pretty short. I mean, and not much time. I mean, the exorcist doesn't come in until the very end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a protracted scene. I, I, if I were, if I were uh, an advisor on that movie, which is, which is supreme wishful thinking, I would have said, give the exorcist a bit more personality and make the exorcism scenes a bit shorter. Hmm. I thought the beginning, the beginning really had me hooked. I, I thought the ending, okay. I was quite a, on a quite different mode. I was fascinated because, uh, uh, I don't want to, what, what's her name? Uh, Ellen, Ellen Burstyn yeah. has, uh, now has the record for the, Longest gap between playing the same character in the movies. Wow. She played it. She played it in 1973, and she played it in 19 in 2023. So that's 50 years. Until <laughs> then, I, I keep track of these things. Until then, it was uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in uh, as Laurie Strode in the Halloween series. She had played that Laurie Strode over a period of 44 years. Wow. And she was the record holder. But now it falls to Ellen Burstyn, and it also falls to another actress who is not billed in the movie, and I will not say her name, but she's, she holds the record with her now. Hmm. Okay. It's on my bucket list to see within the next couple of weeks, so I, I can't wait to see that. Incidentally, I, uh, The Exorcist, 1973. I didn't know anything about it. My sister was... Uh, Let's see. I was 23. My sister was 15. She had read the book and she wanted to see the movie. Mm. But back in the 70s and before, big movies like The Exorcist came out, opened in New York, and they would open in the big cities. And they would stay there for quite a while until they hit the suburbs. So my sister wanted to see it. So I said, okay, I'll take you to New York. Right? I'm, here's the big brother. I'm taking her to the big city. And I'm supposed to know all about horror movies. And we go to see The Exorcist. Through the whole movies, she is saying, "Oh, the book was better than this," <laughs> and I'm and I'm sitting there absolutely terrified. <laughs> what are they going to do to me next in this movie? Yeah. So, uh, but I, I, it's it's a great movie. But I, I wasn't, you know, my devil until then. My devil came from the Twilight Zone and things like that. You know, he's yeah. Dealing for souls, he wasn't. He wasn't throwing up on you. <laughs> so. Yeah, oh, that was you know, Frank, Exorcist. with the original Exorcist from 1973, you know, so much is made of of Linda Blair's performance, uh, Max von Sydow, who comes in late as the the chief exorcist. But for me, the the person, the guy who's really the standout in that movie is the late Jason Miller as Father Karras. I thought he, I thought he was the star. And to this day, he still doesn't get the credit for that powerful role he played. Yeah, he certainly didn't get it in the credits. I mean, he, I think he's like seventh or eighth in the cast. Yeah. And, uh, but I quite agree with you. I mean, it's his movie. Uh, the other ones are fine. And, uh, but I mean, the, the, he carries the movie. And it's, it's not a lot of actors that can carry a movie. Yeah. And uh, I mean, sometimes you'd be watching a movie and the, the stars, you know, would be a, uh, an actor or an actress is basically a pretty face. And, and, you know, you, and, you know, the movie is begging to be stolen by someone, some, a supporting character, but, but I uh, know I, cu- I couldn't agree with you more. Jason Miller is outstanding in that movie. 
and I don't think he got an Oscar nomination. And if he didn't, he should have, because he yeah. was uh, he was a one, and he's the movie. Without him, the movie would be be a bit flat. Yeah. Last question, Frank, on the original Exorcist. Uh, a lot of people rather famously fled the theater. They couldn't take it. They couldn't go through to the end. Did that happen to you? Did you make it all the way through? Oh yeah, yeah. I've uh, I have only left the movie out of boredom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I made it through. I made it through War of the Worlds when I was three years old. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I was actually I I had lunch a few weeks ago with a guy who worked in a movie theater, and, and he told me that people will, will go out late in the movie demanding a ticket because the movie isn't what it was supposed to be, or the movie wasn't very good, and they de- they demand a uh, a pass to another movie. So some of that. So the only the only movie. I have ever seen where people walked out, I think genuinely walked out because they couldn't take it, was the Steven, with a Steven Spielberg movie starring Matt Damon about the about World War II, the, uh, the, which starts with the Omaha Beach. I, uh, the name is not coming to me. It's a famous movie. Uh, Private Ryan. Private Ryan, yeah, Saving Private Saving Ryan. Private Ryan, yeah. I swear a dozen people got up and left and that was Linda, Linda, my wife, who's not the movie expert, told me Saving Private Ryan. So, yes. So put her in the credits for this show. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I th- I think about a dozen people separately. Not I mean, there wasn't getting me up as a group. They got up because the uh, the opening scene, the, the, the you know, the landing uh, on Omaha Beach and all that was was, was pretty, uh, pretty graphic. Yeah. So. Frank, let's let's take a few moments to talk about your latest book, which has been getting some terrific reviews. It's called Patron Saints of the Living Dead. Um, for those who haven't seen it, the cover has uh, a character. It's a drawing. looks like a Bela Lugosi, I think, from White Zombie. It's a book that's set in 1983. Tell us the story there. Okay. Uh, well, just a, a little background. I, I've written seven books now. The first three were nonfiction. And Bela Lugosi, uh, Vampire of London, Bela Lugosi in Britain is basically a history book. Uh, a Quaint and Curious volume was a, uh, is a is a book of criticism and analysis. And I saw what I saw when I saw it is a memoir. <laughs> and when I and when I started my fourth book, I said, well, I, I, it occurred to me, oh, all my books are different. What what's left? And I said, well, I'll write a novel. And then I wrote my first uh, novel based on horror movies. That's a, a werewolf remembers. And now I'm uh, the new one. Uh, Patron Saints of the Living Dead is the, my fourth one. And uh, before I, I, I guess I get the idea what monsters I want to write about, but then I'm looking for a theme to hang them on. I mean, I just can't start writing about monsters. And uh, so I think, I think of the theme as the, as the Christmas tree and the, and the monster movies are kind of the Christmas decorations. I hang them on it, but I have to get that have to get that solid core in before I can, I can, I can really write the story. And the core of Patron Saints of the Living Dead is something that most of us will face. A, a young man is called to the bedside of his dying father. And his dying father says to him, I have a quest for you. I want you to find out who my father was, your grandfather. I never knew him. I don't know who he is. I want you to find him. And that's the springboard for the story. 
And the, the dying father says, all I know is that he's probably one of 13 scientists that came to America after World War I. And it turns out these 13 scientists are the zombie masters from different movies and TV shows. <laughs> so, I mean, White Zombie, uh, I'll just run through the list. White Zombie, King of the Zombies, Revenge of the Zombie, Voodoo Man, Zombies on Broadway. And then we get on the TV, there's, an, uh, there's a Superman episode called Drums of Death with a Zombie Master. And, and well, I won't go through all 13, but there's, he has to, he has to, he, he goes through the 13 trying to find out who might be his, uh, his grandfather. And that, that's where the story goes. So and that takes him around because he has to go where these different zombie masters worked in the movies. And, uh, you know, some of them are in the Caribbean, but like the one in a movie called Voodoo Island is out in the middle of the Pacific. And uh, Voodoo Man, a Bela Lugosi movie, tells us several times in the movie that they are in the town of Twin Falls, there's only one Twin Falls in the world, and that's in Idaho. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you wouldn't believe it, but uh, Idaho is, is potatoes and zombies in my book. <laughs> so uh, he, he, you know, he, so it's basically a quest of his to find out his his family ancestry. And uh, so along the way, he he meets some very odd people. He he encounters a handful of zombies. Uh, he spends a lot of time in New Orleans, and there's an, an insane asylum in 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 uh, New Orleans where some zombies have been held held for quite a while because they don't age very fast. They're around with us forever. And uh, and he meets a, he meets a, a love in the movie who is portrayed by my real life wife, Linda, who we, her picture's in the book and she is, a, I made her a character in the book. Oh, nice. And uh, well, you have to read the book before you say nice. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so the, the, the plot takes off, and then this, that, the plot is there. And so he, you know, he goes to the Caribbean and uh, there's actually a, a man, from, man from Uncle has a zombie episode called The Very Important Zombie Affair. And it has a zombie master in it. And he's, he's an important character in the book. So, uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, you know, once I get the spine put together, okay, this is, this is what it is. I start, I start pulling in every movie I can think of. Uh, yeah. Some of them are, I mean, most of them are zombie movies. There's, you know, there's a handful of movies that are voodoo with no mention of zombies. Uh, Bob Hope crossed paths with a zombie in The Ghost Breakers. I don't bring Bob Hope in, but I do bring that zombie in. Hmm. And, uh, but it's, you know, it's all built around this. This guy's on a quest to try to try to satisfy his father's dying wish. When I think, Frank, of zombie films from the 60s, two come to mind. The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, although that's more vampires, I guess, than zombies. And then, of course, probably the most famous zombie film ever, Night of the Living Dead from 1968. Any influence from those two? Uh, well, zombies, there's a, there's a seismic shift in zombies with Night of the Living Dead, of course. Before Night of the Living Dead... There were the classical zombies, sometimes called the plantation zombies, because true zombies are usually working on plantations or in sugar mills in the Caribbean. Hmm. And with Night of the Living Dead, they became carnivorous. <laughs> they became very violent. And uh, and what we lo what we lost in the uh, 
in the modern zombie films is there's no zombie master. I mean, if you go back to the classical zombie films, the most interesting character is usually the zombie master, the guy who's making the zombies. He's the he's the mad doctor. He's the Dr. Frankenstein, if you want to put it that way, that's making the zombies. And we've lost that. So I, I, I don't mention uh, The Last Man on Earth at all, except I, uh, to your listeners, I'll say the... First half of the movie is hard to get through, but if you can get through that, it picks up near. It picks up in the second half, and uh, it took me three tries before I made it to the second half. But it was worth it. And uh, Night of the Living Dead, I I don't have a lot to do with the post Night of the Living Dead zombies. Not a lot of carnivorous zombies in my book. No, I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a classicist. I'm with I'm I'm a classical zombie guy. Frank, tell us what's the best way for people to buy your book. I know you have a website. It's at Amazon. Uh, if there's a preferable way for people to get the book, to buy it, what is it? Well, the, the cheapest way to get my books is through my website, which is cultmoviespress.com. Cultmoviespress, all one word, dot com. And uh, you get free shipping. And uh, that's, the, that's the best way. Uh, Amazon has it. eBay has it. A couple of uh, specialty houses like Creepy Classics has it, and uh, of course, when you when you go, you know, I, I, in all honesty, if you go with Amazon and uh, eBay, you get buyer protection. Whereas you're, if you go straight to me, you're you're dealing dealing uh, on my honor, which is not not a problem. But if I if I drop dead or something, you're not going to get your book. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but barring that, if you save, you can save a few dollars by buying it straight from me on cultmoviespress.com. Your books are always so well-written, so in-depth, but I also love the artwork. Uh, do, you, do you have the same person you go to for artwork each time? Uh, the nonfiction books all had a different, uh, different person on the, on the cover. Uh, my fiction books, the four of them, and they are uh, a werewolf for members about... Uh, the Universal Monsters, mainly the Wolfman, but then Dracula and Frankenstein. Uh, Passion of the Mummy, which is about built around mummy movies. Uh, Carl Denham's Giant Monsters, which is about giant monster movies, King Kong, etc. And Patron Saints of the Living Dead. The covers have all been done, been done by the artist George Chastain, who uh, uh, has done a lot of great work. Uh, he... I don't have that his his website ahead in front of me, but it's put George Chastain, artist into a search engine. You'll find him. He does excellent work for a lot of books, mm -hmm. and I'm very glad to have him working on my book. Very nice. I hate to rush you, but uh, have you thought about a next project? Oh, I'm working on it. Uh, this is going to be my Faust, a deal with the devil, and the uh, the. The devil's in the movies, not the exorcist. I'm more of a classicist. <laughs> yeah. Characters from the Twilight Zones. And uh, there's been a devil appears quite a bit in, in uh, movies in the 30s and 40s and 50s. They all come into my book, as does the Angel of Death, who is in a surprising number of movies, but not nearly as many as the devil. And a few other supernatural figures come in. And basically, the book begins... Uh, with a young man who is uh, at the gates of heaven, but the devil makes the devil makes him a deal, basically makes him an offer he can't refuse, and the young man accepts, and uh, now he has to live with the consequences. So I'm I'm writing that now. I don't have a title I'm in love with, 
that it's the working title is Don't Let Satan Call You Too Fast, which is uh, among the dying words of the gangster Dutch Schultz, mm. who, was, who was gunned down, lived for an, almost a day, and just babbled nonstop for, for hours and hours. And one of the few coherent things he said was, Mom's the best bet, and don't let Satan call you too fast. Oh, wow. So that's my that's my working title. But I, if I find something more catchy, I'll I'll certainly switch to that. Another thing that you're very busy with, you and Linda do a lot of traveling. You go to horror conventions across the country, including the aforementioned Monster Bash. Uh, you've been to the Rondo Awards a number of times, partly because you have often received one of the awards. Uh, what uh, what's on your travel docket coming up over the next several months? Well. Uh... Our, our big vacation of the year, we're going to Italy and Malta in, what, 10 days from now we leave. And, uh, and we've been to Italy before, but we've never been to Malta. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, and then uh, when we get back, uh, next year we'll probably be trying to go to Spain if we can swing it. And, uh, and of course, there'll be monster movie conventions. Uh, the, the, I never miss the Monster Bash. I don't like to do I, one year I did three conventions and that really that was too much. I mean, that's a, I, 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 I think I'll limit it to two. So uh, this year we did the monster bash and the mid Atlantic nostalgia conference, which is outside of Baltimore, which is not a monster movie conference it's a broad, much broader venue. So, so the, everything comes into that, including monster movies, but hardly that's, that's, that's not all that they do. And uh, so we'll be looking for another venue perhaps, but, uh, I don't do, I don't do that many of them. Uh, it, it just doesn't work out for us. I know that Ron Adams, who does such a great job running monster bash often has you do presentations. Does he have one scheduled for July of 2024 for you? I I'm pretty sure I'll be giving one. Uh, he hasn't, he hasn't signed off on it yet, but Greg Mank and I have proposed to him. Now he's the boss. It's his convention. <laughs> he can say yes or no, right? But uh, Greg Mank and I have, I have proposed to him that for the 80th anniversary of um, House of Frankenstein, House of Frankenstein is the fifth in the Universal Frankenstein series, came out in 1944. So the 80th anniversary of it, Greg Mank will give a talk on the movie probably before the movie is shown, and I'll give a talk on it right afterwards. Nice. And Greg, Greg does behind the scenes stuff. So how it was produced and who, why, why certain actors were used and why certain one more than the drama behind the scenes. And Bruce, you've been to a number of my talks. I tend to delve into what's in the movie that is right in front of you, but it's easy to overlook. So I, that, that if I was a betting man, I'd say we'd be doing that. But again, this is Ron's convention. So I'll, the topic will be whatever he and I agree to. Yeah. Well, your talks and Greg Monk's talks are always terrific. I've enjoyed those presentations immensely. Uh, our guest has been Frank Delastrito. Frank is a member of the Monster Kids Hall of Fame. He was voted in by the Rondo Committee a few years back. This is what the committee said about Frank upon his induction. In three can't-put-down novels, he has woven together the untold histories of various uh, movie werewolves and wolfmen, untangled the wanderings of Universal and Hammer's mummies, and explored with Carl Denham the many lost worlds and giant monsters of the Pacific. All this in addition to his trailblazing work on the real-life history of Bela Lugosi, 
shedding light on the unknown corners of classic horror history and providing entertaining looks at the genre's many totems and themes. Delo Strita's work always delivers, and he has changed horror scholarship for the better. I uh, couldn't say it any better. I think that is all very accurate. Frank, uh, we always appreciate your work, and we thank you very much for being on our program. We hope you'll join us again at some point. I certainly will. Uh, Tracy, you wanted to say uh, say something, didn't you? I, I did. Just one more quick note, and this is on behalf of our listeners. Um, what advice would you give to an up-and-coming writer in the genre of horror? Okay, well, there's an old saying, you can make a fortune as a, a, a small fortune as a writer, as long as you start with a big fortune. <laughs> and and uh, uh, horror, a writer in the horror genre. Let me, let me stress, I do not make a living writing horror movies, <laughs> about horror movies, you know? My books don't support me, thank God. It is not easy. Uh, do it for the love of it. Write what you like about, what you love about about things. Uh, try to find a niche where no one else is going. Mm-hmm. I know guys like Ron Adams and other people that run magazines are deluged with material, most of which they reject because it's just not original enough. Uh, and get out of the box. Try to get some new ideas about old films. That's that's I, that's my blessing. I have no trouble coming up with new ideas about old films. And that that's really where my audience is built. And uh, some of the nicest compliments I've got is on, on that respect. But you've got you've to write and hone your art. And if you're doing it for the money, you're probably in the wrong field. <laughs> Those are excellent words. Thank you. Thank you. Frank, we do appreciate your time. Our thanks to uh, the tremendous author, Frank Delastrito. Also, thanks to our co-host and producer, Tracy Asteria. We appreciate all of you joining us in our Museum of the Macabre. And we hope you'll join us the next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery.